So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Josh King, who will be talking about uh, selected poisonings and treatments in the ICU. So Josh did um, his medical school and chief year at Penn State, and then he did his first fellowship in nephrology at Hopkins, where I met him when I was an intern. And he is absolutely one of the reasons why I decided to go into nephrology. He is an amazing clinician. Um, after that fellowship, he pursued another fellowship in toxicology um, and is now doing both toxicology and nephrology at UVA. Um, so it was my pleasure. You'll really enjoy this talk. Jo uh, Josh is one of the greatest clinicians that I've worked with uh, since I met him as a resident. Thanks, Allison. Well, I, I don't live up to the greatest clinician thing, but hopefully I'll tell you something interesting. Um, so this is, a, this is a bit of a hodgepodge talk, and my hope today is that you know, whatever setting you work in, you come from, you'll learn something new that, that's relevant. Um, we'll talk about uh, some the poisonings that might land someone in the ICU, more the medical than the surgical, but you might be surprised. We'll have some, some good cases that, where um, you know, tox you know, comes very much into play in the surgical realm. Um, I'll try to focus on things we do to patients, a uh, few medications we give in the ICU that through their action or excipients or what have you cause toxicity. But the, the um, thing to make sure everyone is aware of before we start talking, toxicology literature is not the thousands of patients with randomized controlled trials. Toxicology literature is generally one or two digit case series. Uh, or maybe that one uh, you know, clinical trial, but oh, it wasn't randomized and it wasn't really blinded either. Um, so we won't be talking about you know, you know, heavy duty literature here. Um, these are some of the things we'll talk about. A few recreational drugs. I wanna focus on some of the novel psychoactives that are out there, synthetic cannabinoids, some of the synthetic amphetamine derivatives, um, a few newer antidotes in the last five to 10 years in medical toxicology. Um, bad things from ICU drugs, and then just a couple random things. Um, to start with, uh, it's important to mention briefly the, the classic toxidromes. These are things that will uh, you know, come up time and again. Um, and uh, the three we'll really focus on today are sympathomimetic toxidrome, anticholinergic toxidrome, and serotonin syndrome all of which can cause essentially agitated delirium and uh, sometimes are difficult to differentiate from one another, sometimes have quite a bit of overlap, especially sympathomimetic toxidrome and serotonin syndrome. Um, it's likely that all of you in this room have seen opioid toxidrome time and again. Um, sedative hypnotic toxidrome is just what it sounds like, being sleepy due to medications. And thankfully, cholinergic toxidrome is the rarest of the classical toxidromes. You're sludging with diarrhea, what have you. Uh, but then, you know, bradycardia, bronchorrhea, seizures, and um, paralysis. So, you know, something that might happen, say, uh, in a sarin gas attack in, in Syria, uh, and unfortunately has, you know, much in the last five years. Um, so, if you have someone come into the emergency room, gets admitted to your ICU with if agitated delirium, in general, most tox-induced agitated delirium will share the characteristics of tachycardia, hypertension, medriasis. Um, you know, serotonergic and uh, dopaminergic toxidromes can cause hallucinations and paranoia. Agitation and confusion are very common. You, you know, differentiating between, say, serotonin syndrome and uh, sympathomimetic toxidrome can be important 
if there are medications that are ongoing that you can stop. But in general, all of the, the three agitated delirium toxidromes lead down the same you know, common clinical pathway to things we're trying to prevent. Seizures, tachyarrhythmias, hyperthermia from uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, which we'll discuss briefly, and rhabdomyolysis. Um, nowadays, there's this uh, wave of newer agents which are hitting not only the streets, but um, your mailbox from the internet where it was mailed directly from the lab that made it um, of uh, novel psychoactive agents or newer um, uh, designer drugs or what have you. And these are uh, a class of, uh, several, one of several classes of drugs that uh, you know, folks are taking not only to get high, but with the thought that it will make you a better person. There's a lot in the pop popular literature about that. Um, but these are things that uh, are often considered, quote, legal highs, and therefore there's this misnomer that they are safe when, if anything, um, the, the opposite is much more the reality. They're mostly sympathomimetic and serotonergic. Most are synthetic, although some, like Kratom, are old drugs used in different ways, um, and some, again, like Kratom, are, are derived purely from nature. Just to go through what we're talking about here, how often are there people using these drugs? Are they a rare thing? Well, if you look at what high school students are using, this, these data are a few years old, um, synthetic cannabinoids were the most abused drug behind marijuana, excluding alcohol and, and uh, tobacco. So they're, they're definitely out there. Um, looking at poison center data, I'll throw up cocaine as a benchmark, although you should bear in mind that these are derived from poison center calls and there are many cocaine you know, intoxications that probably don't get called to poison centers because providers feel comfortable dealing with it. Um, but you know, the, the numbers for um, THC homologs, aka synthetic cannabinoids, are, are somewhat comparable. In 2015, there was a major surge um, that happened in the spring when a couple large symptom uh, sh shipments came into New York and Mississippi. Um, but you can see a you know, wide uh, variety of these, uh, or widely varying numbers, but still in the thousands, so comparable to, to cocaine calls. Um, and about a sixth of those landed um, the person who was using it in the ICU. Uh, similarly for designer amphetamines or synthetic amphetamines from the, you know, say ecstasy, which has been around for 100 years, to NBOM, which has been around for less than 15 um, Less than 15 years ago, there was a PhD who was synthesizing it for his, uh, his uh, you know, dissertation. You know, uh, a few years after that, it hit the streets as uh, you know, a designer drug. Um, and the, the numbers are, again, comparable. And about a fifth of those will land in the ICU. This is that spike I talked about just to kind of set the tone. You can have kind of this baseline you know, usage of synthetic uh, cannabinoids or other designer drugs, and then all of a sudden a big shipment hits and we have widespread use. Uh, New York saw that last year with the, quote, zombie outbreak, um, which was caused by a synthetic cannabinoid, um, AMB Fubinaca. So the symptoms of these drugs, again, are largely serotonergic and sympathomimetic. Patients look revved up, tachycardic, hypertensive, sweating heavily, big eyes, hallucinating, agitated, um, you know, may have choreiform movements, may have a mild inducible clonus or severe inducible clonus. But what we're trying to prevent are, are once again, rhabdo, seizures, um, tachyarrhythmias, uncoupling of oscillative phosphorylation, and vasospastic events. Um, there have been STEMIs reported with these, 
We had a STEMI a couple years ago. There have been uh, strokes, um, acute kidney injury, things that um, aren't readily explained just from um, excess sympathomimetic activity alone. Um, so let's go back to first year biochemistry. I, I know that's what you all came here for today to do um, and talk about the mitochondria. I just want to go through what uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation is because this is the mechanism that drives much of the toxicity of these drugs as well as, say, conventional sympathomimetic drugs like uh, meth or cocaine. Um, you ha I also try to use these slides as much as I can because they're animated, they take a while to make, and I'm trying to get that time back. Um, so you have your electron transport chain. Here's your mitochondria, the outer membrane, the inner membrane electron transport chain, um, which oxidizes NADH and FADH, weedly, 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 um, pumps hydrogens across the intermembrane space. Those same hydrogens are used to synthesize ATP. The energy set up by that gradient works to make it. Then it goes out and powers the cell. This is how most of us you know, get most of our energy. Um, if you have an uncoupler, um, you know, a drug like, say, um, salicylates or amphetamines, they, uh, these drugs enter the mitochondrion and bind to a pore that allows hydrogen and ATP to just flow out down its concentration gradient without making new ATP. This leads to loss of energy. You're not making enough ATP. Um, hyperthermia, because you know, that energy released has to go somewhere, and it's generally released in the form of heat. And because it makes um, uh, you know, uh, the respiratory chain less efficient, you end up with a lactic acidosis. So this drives you know, much of the toxicity in you know, name your organ, cardiotoxicity with shock, um, you know, neurotoxicity with seizures, uh, general uh, you know, systemic lactic acidosis and hyperthermia. This is what's behind many of these drugs' actions. Um, just to go through a few of these uh, classes of drugs, Again, back to chemistry. So phenylethylamine is the backbone for pretty much all of our catecholamines, like dopamine, where dopamine is methylated to make epinephrine. Amphetamine is similarly methylated to make uh, methamphetamine. But the big difference there is that this methyl group here blocks monoamine oxidase. So amphetamines and methamphetamines last for a lot longer than catecholamines. Um, you could take cathinone or caffeine, a similar compounds, which are mild stimulants found in cot. Um, it's, a, it's a leaf which is chewed in Yemen and Ethiopia, you know, recreationally, much like coca leaves or, or even uh, coffee. Um, and methylated a couple times and make mephedrone, your prototypical bath salt, um, which is much more sympathomimetic and often leads to severe rhabdo, tachyarrhythmias, very agitated patients. That guy in Florida who was eating somebody's face, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, potentially very dangerous drug. Uh, MDMA, a synthetic amphetamine, uh, you know, it has the same structure as, as uh, methamphetamine, but with this dimethoxy group, the, you know, methylene dimethoxy group here added onto it, which lends it serotonergic activity. Um, hence, someone might not want to use amphetamines, but might use MDMA for more of a um, relaxed, quote, relaxed experience. Um, in practicality, the toxicity looks the same, but you might see more seizures and uh, clonus with MDMA. 
Um, then we get to you know, more colorful derivatives of phenylethylamines, such as 2CB, a designer amphetamine. We've had a case of um, non-resolving psychosis from this a couple years ago. A um, young uh, Ivy League college student was at UVA, used this drug, and um, uh, you know, basically developed hallucinations and paranoia that never went away months later. Uh, 25 NBOM, which has a you know, great name, um, you know, NBOME, NBOM is the street name, uh, which was legal up till about four or five years ago and very popular among the UVA students who use such stimulants. So we had a few of those, very short-lived agitation. Bromo dragonfly, which looks like a dragonfly, which is why it's here. Um, then we get to synthetic cannabinoids, which have you know, varying and interesting structures. Um, JWH018, one of the prototypical ones, which then led to um, you know, later formulations, um, sold as K2, spice, Scooby Snacks. Um, your Scooby Snacks that you buy this year may be different from the ones you buy next year because by that time, the drug manufacturing lab will have cycled its product to avoid legality. Um, where if there is a law in the books, if I sell you a product which is um, similar to an amphetamine or some other drug, you know, which is uh, Schedule One, and you use that, you know, recreationally, you know, that's illegal to do. But if I sell you that drug, which is not specifically illegal itself, only similar in structure, and say this is plant food or bath salts, um, it's legal. You know, it's at least in a gray zone, if not legal to do which is why many of these drugs were sold originally at convenience stores uh, when they were, first came out. Um, now, how easy is it nowadays? So I did this maybe a couple years ago. I went online and said, okay, I want to buy K2. I was redirected to helpful websites um, that have 800 numbers and operators standing by um, that you know, purported to tell me which of these synthetic cannabinoids they had to sell were legal in the state that I was in. Um, and you know, you can do it this way. You can go to the, the dark web um, and, uh, you know, have a more clandestine drug purchase of larger amounts, large, you know, mostly for dealers, um, or you can find it on the street. So it doesn't have to be someone who's, uh, you, know, you know, for some, someone who might be intimidated by going out and buying heroin could, you know, from the comfort of their own home, you know, figure out how to buy a synthetic cannabinoid online and have it shipped to them. So your patients probably know more than you do about the various drugs that are out there, although they probably don't know more than you do about the bad effects that these drugs can cause. Although sometimes they do. Um, you know, there are tremendous online resources, and we will you know, periodically comb drug forums to see what people are up to, to a certain extent. If we have a rash of new exposures we can't really explain, we might go online to figure out where to start. Um, John W. Huffman was an organic chemist who in the 90s had you know, multiple you know, uh, R01 grants to develop new synthetic cannabinoids looking for drugs like dronabinol. Um, many of his failures, drugs that just caused agitation hallucinations, were shelved and, into the patent office. And you know, years later, people came, pulled these patents, found out the structures of the drugs, figured out how to synthesize them, and you know, these are where many of the original synthetic cannabinoids have come, you know, came from. Many of the newer ones are being synthesized um, by, the, by the labs themselves. Um, uh, you know, they're often sold as potpourri, you know, the actual plant material and then sprayed 
as they're active in milligram or even microgram quantity, depending on the drug, um, onto these, uh, you know, uh, this potpourri, which that you can then take and stick into cigars or a marijuana cigarette, or you can get the liquid for e-cigarettes. I've found a recipe for synthetic cannabinoid brownies online. Um, many things you can do with it. Um, they're potent agonists at cannabinoid receptors. We know of at least two. There's probably a third cannabinoid receptor we don't really, um, haven't really fully characterized, but that one seems to be involved with um, apoptosis. Um, and uh, they, uh, the, the CB1 receptors, which are the ones that get you high that THC acts at, but cannabidiol, say, does not uh, induce release of serotonin, norepinephrine, um, dopamine, the things that people want in order to get high. Um, when you take someone who's you know, uh, using marijuana and you up the potency of that you know, receptor effect you know, 100 times, 1,000 times, you get somewhat different clinical effects you know, that, that look like the revved up patients we've described. Um, you know, some of the more unusual effects include, um, again, vasospastic uh, events, you know, MIs, ischemic stroke, this non-resolving psychosis. Uh, some of them don't seem to cause agitation, but rather, um, you know, encephalopathy with, with um, you know, somnolence, like, say, the zombie outbreak, where people who are using AMB Fubinaca, um, largely, you know, a homeless group that started using this drug, um, you know, ended up with just this encephalopathy where they'd kind of stare there, hence the, the zombie moniker. Um, and while we're talking about street drugs, although ketamine is not a new drug, I think it's important to mention that its use is significantly on the rise in some communities, especially West Coast, as well as Hong Kong. Um, and people who use chronic ketamine, um, putting the, the kidney hat on, um, can develop um, chronic bladder obstruction, either the bladder outlet or the ureters, um, and end up needing permanent nephrostomy tubes or, you know, resulting in end-stage renal disease, um, as well as causing, you know, an agitated delirium from its NMDA receptor antagonism. Testing for these drugs is exceedingly challenging. Urine drug screens will categorically be negative um, unless they're expressively expressly testing for these, these uh, compounds. And most likely the only one you'll find on UDS is our MDMA. The problem is, as the drugs themselves are changed several times a year, the companies um, are behind, that, that you'd send uh, reference labs to are behind you know, the, the drug labs. The drug labs usually don't send out a bulletin, we're going to switch to XLR11 next, you know, next March. Um, and typically, each of these you know, requires a new methods development validation. The lab has to see enough cases to make it economically worthwhile um, and to be able to build a curve for it and their unusual chemical structures. So testing for these drugs is often very difficult. This is an advertisement from NMS, one of the labs that we use you know, more frequently, although I will say we don't usually send these out unless there's a, a new clinical question. Um, that just showed from 2010 to 2012 the percentage of one synthetic cannabinoid that accounted for most of the exposures dropped down to a small fraction. And we've seen similar shifts over time. So it's very difficult to test for, you know, quote, synthetic cannabinoids when many of them have very different structures um, and may act differently. This is how drug users know what they're getting. 
you know, the, if um, you, you have drug users who stamp their drugs, and, and some of them do so surreptitiously. There have been cases of heroin, which is stamped OC40, purporting to be a 40 milligram Oxycontin and what have you. Um, if uh, McDonald's doesn't work for you, then, then maybe you'll move to Pax or Crown um, or email or Volkswagen or what have you. Um, uh, unfortunately, you, you can't trust your drug dealer. Uh, at one point, we partnered with a site where uh, users could send their drugs in, pay a fee, and have that drug run through a GCMS to say what it was. Only about one quarter of what was sold as, quote, molly or molecular ecstasy, purported to be MDMA, was MDMA. Most of it were synthetic cathinones or bath salts. The way you treat these folks, so you want to control agitation, decrease sympathomimetic output, reduce serotonergic tone, and address end organ toxicity. Um, and the way you typically do that is with benzodiazepines. You know, these, these drugs will, will do each of these effects and uh, you know, will hopefully make your severe effects less likely. Rhabdo, tachymrhythmus, what have you. Um, hydration is important. Other drugs may be needed for behavior control like antipsychotics. There's no real way to remove these drugs. You can't dialyze them off, but they tend to have rather short-lived you know, effect anyway. So the goal is to, to stabilize the patient, sometimes very aggressively, uh, until they manage to metabolize or excrete the drugs on their own. If you have refractory seizures, um, you know, if, if, uh, GABA agonists are, are ineffective. Barbiturates will serve you in better stead than, say, um, uh, phenytoin or other neuronal sodium channel blockers. Um, the hypothesis behind most tox-induced seizures is that, is that it's either an excess of neuroexcitatory factors or an imbalance you know, between neuroinhibition and uh, uh, neuroexcitatory factors. If you have too much neuroexcitatory factors like sympathomimetics or too little, meaning you take a drug which is a you know, GABA antagonist or you're withdrawing from alcohol, um, you'll, you'll have a generalized seizure. Sodium channel blockers like phenytoin act at a single point, you know, usually a single or multiple points where you have seizure foci, areas where transmission is too fast. You'll slow the transmission through you know, the, that area more selectively than you will the rest of the brain. So those are not drugs you should use for these folks. Um, again, for hyperthermia, um, GABA agonists have a direct effect on something called the mitochondrial permeability transition poor. You don't need to know that, but you do need to know that it, they're a good way to treat uncoupling toxidrome um, uh, because uh, they'll decrease the ability of the, the inciting drug to cause uncoupling. Um, we've had good luck with Presidex or dexmedetomidine, but I want to caution you and say it has no anti-seizure effect on its own. So you know, we recommend using it as an adjunct, not as a single agent to treat these folks. Uh, hypertensive crises, you're going to want a short-acting vasodilator. I prefer nitro. Nicardipine is good. Um, and uh, you know, just like we avoid beta blockade and cocaine because you want to avoid unopposed alpha agonism with uh, hypertensive crisis, same thing here. Uh, for any, any toxin you know, with alpha and beta activity causing hypertension, you know, short-acting vasodilators will, will serve you in better stead. I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about some of the newer antidotes we're using in toxicology. And then I want to move to a number of cases that, that get to that 
other part of the title of this talk, um, you know, things that we do to patients which cause, uh, which cause toxicological problems. Um, but you know, intralipid um, and other lipid formulations have been used for local anesthetic toxicity as well as other toxicity for a while now in toxicology. Um, the last five years has been this explosion of interest in lipids for everything vasodilatory. Um, although the data doesn't really back that up as much. But the hypothesis is you're doing a spinal block on a patient and you accidentally give them a large intravascular bolus of bupivacaine. They react by having you know, a seizure and then go into a tachyarrhythmia uh, or, or refractory bradycardia. Um, the lipid sink hypothesis is that if you give a patient a bag of 20% soybean oil, generally uh, almost exclusive in the US, this means interlipid, the same lipids that you use for TPN, um, in a very short time frame, you'll create a, you know, a raft of lipid or a lipid sink within the, the plasma that where the drug can you know, uh, essentially can distribute to rather than lipophilic tissue. Um, the idea is then that you'll either stabilize the patient or excrete it you know, more slowly over time. Basically trying to treat that you know, large intravascular bolus of uh, bupivacaine the patient got accidentally. Um, the the uh, way we dose these is the uh, way that it was dosed for most patients with bupivacaine, and we're doing a lot of extrapolation from that drug, um, where initially you'll give them 1.5 mils per kg bolus till it's in, and then a slower, um, uh, you know, fit over 15 minutes, you'll bolus uh, at, at a slower rate. Um, there's good evidence, well, when I say good, I mean good for toxicology good. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But there's reasonably compelling evidence for bupivacaine specifically as a local anesthetic that if you have a patient who gets local anesthetic toxicity from an, you know, either excess dose or accidental intravascular you know, injection, it's a good thing to give them, you know, uh, you know, a dose of lipids in short order should they have severe toxicity or arrest. If you have other local anesthetics, the data is probably better for cardiac arrest than it is for necessarily severe toxicity, um, but, but it does make sense. And then, again, in tox, we've used it for pretty much every lipophilic vasodilatory drug that you can, you can think of. If you come up with, you know, think of something that causes vasodilation and, and shock and poisoning and type it into PubMed followed by lipids, and you'll probably find a case where somebody gave it. Um, the data for those are not as strong. Um, uh, a couple years ago, um, you know, a, a um, you know, systematic review was done by a group of toxicologists, and it, it comes out as you know, kind of grade D evidence for everything, but you know, less compelling for drugs other than bupivacaine. We still consider it um, for patients with severe shock. Uh, last month, we had a very severe um, hydroxychloroquine overdose where a patient you know, had lupus, took her Plaquenil, presented by coding five times, and then um, you know, had, had seizures. Um, we did give her lipids, and they did seem to work. But that's about the level of strength of evidence you'll get for, for many of the, the drugs with lipids. Um, they're not innocuous agents. Pancreatitis has been reported as probably the most common severe adverse effect. But the other one I want to bring to your attention is interference with extracorporeal therapy. So 
Um, there have been cases where high doses of lipids have interfered with ECMO working. So if you have a patient who comes in with refractory shock after ingesting diltiazem, lipids are, are something worth considering. But if they're sick enough that you're going to put them on ECMO anyway, I'd probably avoid it. Um, you might make matters worse. Methylene blue. So those of you who work in, uh, you know, with cardiac surgery patients are probably familiar with this drug for vasoplegia. So it has a pretty established role in methemoglobinemia. Um, it itself is an oxidizing agent, the, the, which is a little, contra, uh, a little uh, counterintuitive until you think about it a bit. Um, methylene, uh, methemoglobinemia is a situation where you know, iron is oxidized and the, the resultant methemoglobin, you know, the iron in hemoglobin, the methemoglobin, um, uh, is you know, very poor at giving up iron to tissues. Um, methylene blue can serve as essentially a shuttle from stores of NADPH to allow reduction of that methemoglobin back to regular hemoglobin. Um, but there's also evidence that it impairs, um, guan uh, but basically impairs uh, guanidine cyclase activity, which means you have less cyclic GMP. Cyclic GMP is the uh, second messenger by which nitric oxide um, causes vasodilation. So if you impair vasodilation, um, you, know, you, you might be able to treat a wide variety of shock, and it's been used you know, in cardiac surgery you know, extensively for that. Many of you have probably seen you know, many more patients than I have with that. Um, it's also been used as a cyanide antidote by causing methemoglobinemia. Um, uh, it causes, uh, you know, it's, uh, as far as refractory non-cardiogenic shock, there are cases for a number of different vasodilatory drugs. There's some, you know, there's a pig model of vamlodipine and, and uh, you know, and uh, methylene blue works for that. There's another, I think, a mouse model where it doesn't work for a similar vasodilator. So not everything is, is perfect. Uh, and there are, are models and cases where it's been used for septic and anaphylactic shock as a salvage therapy. We've used it as a salvage therapy and haven't had any luck with it, but it's entirely, so it may not work, or it may be that the patients we used it on were too far gone to begin with. Um, but it is something that could be considered for refractory drug-induced shock. Uh, I'm not going to go into the side effects of it because I have a great case that does just that. Lastly, hydroxocobalamin. This has been around for, oh gosh, I don't know, 15 years or more maybe. Um, so this is uh, essentially, this is vitamin B12 without the cyanide. So the patient who's been poisoned from, say, smoke inhalation, um, or less frequently from direct ingestion of cyanide or inhaling hydrogen cyanide gas from some other mechanism. The, the most cases we see of cyanide poisoning are from smoke inhalation, PVC and similar uh, you know, uh, synthetic materials when burned will often off-gas hydrogen cyanide. Um, but hydroxycobalamin combines with those to make vitamin B12, very elegant uh, antidote. Um, there's also some evidence that it does scavenge nitric oxide as well. There are some case reports of use in cardiac surgery. There was one case um, within the last year or two where a patient had uh, refractory vasoplegia and shock to um, methylene blue, was treated with hydroxycobalamin, and, and uh, came back and improved from there. But it's mostly anecdotal in the tox literature. This is one which I would consider not ready for prime time for the most part. 
Um, it's a very interesting drug. Um, we had someone who had smoke inhalation last summer, get, you know, had a, a severe lactic acidosis, was treated with hydroxycobalamin, came into our ICU, was transferred to our ICU, had acute kidney injury, was put on dialysis, and the dialysis machine didn't work uh, because it has this intense reddish color. It stains all of your secretion, saliva, um, you know, plasma with this, this beautiful reddish color. Uh, unfortunately, it stains your plasma to look like this, kind of pale there. This is the spent dialysate in the patient who is receiving um, you know, uh, you know, continuous renal replacement therapy stained with hydroxycobalamin. This is that reddish color as excreted in the urine, and you can see how much patient, you know, urine that patient was making that I had to take that tiny picture there. Um, uh, and that can cause a you know, blood leak lermodialysis. It also interferes with the number of colorimetric tests. So if a patient receives it, you won't be able to tell if they have acute liver injury um, or acute renal failure or, uh, or, a few other, or rhabdomyolysis for you know, a couple days. Um, because the, the, it just interferes with, with a number of colorimetric tests. So let's move to a case. We'll do a few cases, and I'm hoping to, to finish with lots of time for, for questions. But the, all of these cases I'm describing here are ones that, um, you know, either I've seen in person or, or ones that our, our group has seen. So just to give a real-life example. This is a 60-year-old man. He had severe you know, systolic dysfunction with an EF of 15%. He had an LVAD placed, diabetic, hypertension, chronic kidney disease. Uh, he was listed status 1A for a heart transplant, and luckily he got one. He was on a number of medications. Um, I've listed two of them. And after he, you know, when he got in the OR, he had his aorta cross clamp. He developed, you know, severe hypotension and, and uh, you know, was re not responsive to phenylephrine, got methylene blue, was put on cardiac bypass, did well from there. Postoperatively in the PACU, he was known to be agitated, gets admitted to our cardiac, uh, you know, uh, ICU, and um, was just having rigors, as the team noted. They said the patient just keeps shaking. Temperature was a little up. So they were given Demerol, meparidine, for rigors, and those rigors got worse. Um, he developed a temperature of 40 degrees Celsius, worse than jerking. Um, now, if you're familiar with the Libby Zion case or serotonin syndrome, you could see that you know, we actually had um, uh, duplicated, essentially, that case, where a patient started out with some serotonergic drugs, um, and was given methylene blue, which is an MAOI, which is probably one of the, the more um, you know, severe things to know about. That and that it's also being an oxidant can cause uh, methemoglobinemia and, and oxidative hemolysis. So gets methylene blue, sedated with fentanyl, getting fentanyl for pain, become, you know, develops serotonin syndrome with what was misdiagnosed as rigors and was actually sustained clonus. Um, had an elevated temperature from that uncoupling we talked about earlier, and got meparidine, and unfortunately got worse. So this is this is how serotonin syndrome can build. You know, it, it looks really nice when I put it up there, but it's it could be easy to see how this might not be noticed at the time. Um, you know, the, the patient becomes shocky. I, I doubt the surgeon said, "Oh, well, wait, we can't give the methylene blue because they're taking you know Lexapro as an outpatient." Probably wouldn't be the right answer. Um, it's, it's generally a series of medications if it's not caused by a single you know, overdose. And uh, serotonin syndrome itself is caused by excessive stimulation of these two subgroups of, the serot of serotonin receptors, 5-HT1A, 5-HT2A. 
Um, hyperreflexia and clonus are nearly pathognomonic. If they are not present, think about something else. Um, while scrolling through drug websites, I found this picture here while people were discussing um, dextromethorphan. It's a robot tripping, so, so robo-tripping. Um, so these findings we kind of mentioned earlier, but um, uh, you can see here from a, a very nice New England Journal Review article of an excellent illustration of a patient who has you know, severe serotonin syndrome. Agitated delirium, madriasis, um, you know, clonus, either induced or sustained, tremors. Um, this is how these patients look. They're generally hypertensive. Sometimes they'll have autonomic instability with widely varying blood pressures. I have a patient as an, an outpatient with carcinoid syndrome. I'm, same problem. I'm trying to figure out how to fix her hypertension when one day she's 100 and the next she's 180. Patient with serotonin syndrome might be 100 and then you know, systolic, then five minutes later, 190 systolic. Very hard to treat. Generally, they're hypertensive. Um, these are the Hunter uh, Area uh, Toxicology Service criteria. Um, serotonin syndrome was first described well in the psychiatry literature, and there's uh, you know, a psychiatrist, Sternbach, came up with you know, a very useful set of criteria. Um, the Hunter Area Service, which is in Australia, um, took a number of their cases and tried to codify them to you know, uh, develop a more sensitive and specific uh, method for diagnosing serotonin syndrome. And if you look, uh, and this is pretty sensitive and specific, it rests very heavily on the presence of clonus. Clonus, if not clonus, still has to have hyperreflexia. Um, sometimes these patients, and uh, this is a very easy thing to, to examine, you know, in, 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 uh, in, your, in your ICU patients. You know, just, you could, you could uh, screen for serotonin syndrome and someone is tachycardic hypertension, you're wondering about it, simply by going and pushing on their feet. Sometimes they're agitated and, and uh, uh, they have enough lower extremity hyper uh, you know, tonicity that you may not notice the clonus because they're so rigid you can't elicit it. And often we'll find that those patients, after getting some antidote for serotonin syndrome, will have less clonus and hyper, you know, will start to have sustained clonus as their legs relax. Um, a quick review of drugs that are serotonergic. All antidepressants are serotonergic uh, through one mechanism or another. Um, most sympathomimetic drugs are at least a little bit serotonergic. All synthetic opioids, meaning fentanyl, meperidine, um, uh, uh, tramadol, uh, to a lesser extent uh, methadone, have some serotonergic activity. Meperidine is extremely serotonergic. Fentanyl is, is mildly serotonergic, but we give it a lot and we often give it in high dose. Uh, methylene blue is an MAOI. Uh, most of you probably know that linazolid is an MAOI as well. Um, lithium is mildly serotonergic. So it, it's not, in, in therapeutic use, it is extremely rare for a single drug to cause serotonin syndrome. It's usually a mixture of two or three drugs with different mechanisms of action. How do you treat them? Well, the way our group likes to do it is benzos, benzos, and then benzos if benzos do not work. Um, with the idea, again, that you're trying to decrease catecholamine excretion, you're trying to, to rev them up. There is an antidote specifically to you know, serotonin syndrome, ciproheptidine, which is an antihistamine, which is also anticholinergic. We found it's good for mild cases, but we haven't used it a lot for, for um, um, severe cases, mainly because it's oral only. Patients may start to get anticholinergic toxidrome. You might get different uh, 
things from other toxicologists. I'm not, not sure what but Hong and you guys do here. We tend to shy away from ciproheptanine because we have not had great luck with it with anything other than you know, milder cases. And again, dexmedetomidine, we actually published our experience with this, um, is uh, fairly useful as an adjunct. Um, a patient we had, a 15-year-old who drank two bottles of extended release dextromethorphan, um, had a CK of 40,000, regular temperatures to the 40s, um, severe hypertension, um, was on maxed out Versed. Uh, we were giving him phenobarboluses periodically, still remained hyperthermic. We were able to, to have better result with dexmedetomidine, but we, we, you know, bearing in mind that doesn't stop seizures, please don't use it as a single agent. Um, another case we saw, so it just, you know, perhaps a distracting toxicological injury. So you're all probably familiar with the concept of distracting injury. A patient comes in after a trauma with one thing that causes a lot of pain, but something else which may be more serious doesn't get picked up because um, they focus so heavily on the pain. So we had a 45-year-old man um, a couple winters ago who cut his hand halfway off with a bandsaw out in his shed. Um, he was found a few hours later by his wife, you know, at 4 a.m., nearly, you know, temperature was uh, probably 33. Uh, he, he got brought in. He admitted also to overdosing on sertraline. Um, he was shocky when he came in, although that improved ra fairly rapidly. Got intubated, went to surgery, and the hand got amputated. He had some interesting labs. His bicarb was 12 with a mild AKI. His baseline was less than 1. He had some acidemia with a pretty significant lactate on his blood gas. His venous lactate drawn five minutes later was half that. And then postoperatively, he continued to have pretty severe metabolic acidosis with a venous lactate, you know, a VBG lactate that was still very high, but a lactate done on serum which was much lower. So we did some additional testing and found that this was a case of what we call the lactate gap, um, where glycolic acid, a metabolite of ethylene glycol, will look a lot like lactic acid. Um, and the clue in this case, again, was the stark difference between you know, his blood gas analyzer lactate, which uses lactate oxidase and can misread glycolic acid as lactic acid, versus um, the venous lactate. We also had a case before that um, of a patient who is misdiagnosed initially by us as metformin overdose. Patient uh, on metformin came into a hospital with severe renal failure and a lactic acid of greater than 33. The hospital used the, the blood gas analyzer for all lactates drawn in the hospital. So there was no serum lactate. So they had a lactate of greater than 33, metformin poisoning. We suggested dialysis. Things went along. The case wasn't fitting. She was hypocalcemic, couldn't figure out why sent off ethylene glycol levels, they were sky high. It turns out, you know, a couple years later, the husband, you know, is, fine, you know, is uh, arrested and tried for attempting to poison his wife with, with antifreeze. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in that case, it was misdiagnosed, you know, two wrongs made a right. Misdiagnosed, dialyzed, patient got better. Um, this was a case that, um, you know, I, I felt a little bit sheepish about because I actually caused it. Um, I've done two fellowships, so I had to moonlight a lot. And so I've worked a lot as a hospitalist. Uh, as a 65-year-old man who came in with AML on chemo, admitted with febrile neutropenia, gets vanc, cefepine, and cipro, 
develops septic shock, which thankfully gets better. He develops some acute tubular necrosis along the way. His creatinine's up. Shock resolves. Day four, I go into the room, and the patient's literally doing this. It's like, what's going on? I feel awful. The shaking. Day five, he had seizures intubated. Actually, day five, thankfully, didn't happen. Um, this is cefepime neurotoxicity, where, where all beta blockers, or sorry, beta lactams to a certain extent act as GABA antagonists, but cefepime has a much uh, lower therapeutic, no, it's more narrow therapeutic index than your average beta, you know, uh, beta lactam. Um, and um, in high levels caused generally by high doses in renal failure, um, you can get buildup with spontaneous myoclonus, encephalopathy, agitated delirium can lead to seizures and death. Um, you can treat it with GABA agonists. You can also dialyze it off. A few other antibiotics of note in the ICU. I just want to draw folks' attention to the vancomycin and uh, zosin interaction, where your odds ratio for acute kidney injury goes up markedly compared to either no zosin or to other beta-lactams. And the thought is that it either you know, somehow increases vancomycin's entry into the cells or toxicity. It's not clear which. Linazolids and MAOI, quinolones can cause tendon rupture in, you know, in the acute or chronic setting. Um, higher vancomycin doses lead to more AKI. As a kidney doc, I have to mention this. So I'm seeing it more and more. Um, we had a patient, this is from a few weeks ago. I love these, these uh, crystals, so I just had to share them. We had a guy who had uh, acute kidney injury when he was treated with um, 15 mg per kg of Bactrim for stenothrophomonas bacteremia. Um, uh, sulfamethoxazole is one of those drugs that can crystallize out in the urine like acyclovir and cause um, toxicity. So very pretty crystals, and we can polarize them too. Pretty, pretty there too. Um, excipients. That stuff in fine print, when you prescribe a drug, you're also prescribing everything it comes in, including the diluent. Um, these, these compounds known as excipients sometimes are what cause the toxicity. So for example, if you know, we talk about never to push phenotone on a patient, that's actually not due to the phenotone itself. It's due to the large amount of um, uh, propylene glycol that it's dissolved in, which can cause you know, shock if given to a patient in a short period of time. High-dose lorazepam drips, especially for patients with renal failure, can also build up and get metabolized to lactic acid and produce lactic acidosis and, and shock. Um, bumetanide. If you have a patient in your CCU, you know, um, bad heart failure, getting a Bumex drip, you change the dose from 0.5 milligrams per hour to, to 1 milligram per hour to 2 milligrams per hour, and all of a sudden your patient is just achy all over. That may be because the excipient itself actually causes myalgias and it's dose-related. And then, I don't have time to give it justice, but the propofol-related infusion syndrome uh, is by far the most serious you know, you know, uh, excipient toxicity. This is thought probably more due to the lipids that propofol are dissolved in, although that is somewhat, the jury's somewhat out on that, um, where you know, high-dose prolonged propofol infusions may lead to this uh, you know, uh, syndrome best described in children, refractory bradycardia asystole, as well as severe rhabdolactic acidosis and shock. This is one to be aware of. In general, your, uh, your, your ICU pharmacist should be very well versed in this. Um, prolonged sedation. We've had uh, you know, patients essentially build up neurotoxic opioid metabolites where um, all three glucuronide opioid metabolites, morphine three glucuronide, um, uh, hydromorphone three glucuronide, 
um, or, uh, can cause agitated delirium and seizures. Um, you don't see this too often, but you do see it in people who have been in the ICU for a long time, long ventilator wean, trach, peg, have no problems with pain, um, who are on high-dose opioids for a long time. In some of these patients, the metabolites, which uh, you know, may build up over time, um, sit in lipophilic tissue and uh, you know, lead to these uh, um, you know, agitated delirium cases. You may see it on occasion. Dexmedetomidine, which is being used more and more in our ICU, sounds like yours as well, um, probably really everywhere, um, is very pharmacologically similar to clonidine. Well, just like clonidine, you can get withdrawal as well. More in children, we've seen a few cases of this. Typically, it's hypertension and tachycardia, which are reasonably easy to control. Occasionally, though, you'll get you know, more severe symptoms. Um, if you have end-stage renal disease, everything that, you're, that you get to paralyze you and sedate you, or almost everything at least, will build up. Um, patients who have end-stage renal disease will have paralytics last longer. Um, Versed lasts about twice as long. There's no difference in propofol and fentanyl. And lastly, I want to finish just with, it's been a hodgepodge talk, and I want to finish with a hodgepodge review of you know, poisons in general to be aware of as an ICU doc. These are ones that, that for one reason or another, frighten me. Um, salicylates. Patients can look very well and then, de you know, then say, get a sedative for mild agitation, develop acidemia, salicylate crosses the blood-brain barrier, and rapidly decompensate. Um, they don't look as sick as they are. Bupropion XL formulations, well, Butrin XL, um, 300 milligrams is the top prescribed dose. At 600 milligrams, your risk for seizure increases tenfold. We've had people accidentally take an extra or two extra pills and require 24-hour observations in the hospital because their risk for seizure has suddenly jumped up. Um, and it happens late as well. Long-acting opioids can easily resedate if they're not watched closely. We, had, we admitted a method. I was on service on Monday. We admitted a patient with methadone toxicity for this, you know, this very, uh, very reason. Uh, TCAs, patients can de decompensate abruptly. Thankfully, we don't see too many TCA overdoses nowadays because it's mostly prescribed for, um, say, auto, you know, diabetic neuropathy, where uh, the doses are much lower than when it's prescribed for depression, but they can get very sick very fast. Baclofen, um, a GABA-B agonist, has one of the most severe withdrawal syndromes you'll ever see. Uh, looks a lot like DTs with hyperthermia up to 40, autonomic instability, shock, tachyarrhythmias. Um, if we have someone overdose on baclofen, as soon as they, if they which, can, which can make you sedated to the point of actually mimicking brain death, the second they get extubated, we ask the team to start back oral baclofen to avoid this withdrawal syndrome. Calcium channel blockers, folks get real sick. The last bad calcium channel blocker I saw in person was on four pressors, calcium drip, glucagon drip, an insulin infusion going at 200 units per hour um, and uh, you know, required all of that to stay alive. I left the mor the, that, the early that morning saying, all right, she's not going to be back when I came back. I came back about five hours later, and um, she was on one presser and being weaned off the others. So with very aggressive support, they can do well, but they get very sick. Isoniazide leads to... Um, Essentially, decreased activated pyridoxine, uh, which leads to decreased GABA, which leads to refractory seizures, and may require very high-dose vitamin B6 to treat. When I say very high-dose, I mean 50 vials or 5 grams. 
Carbon monoxide is easily misdiagnosed. Hydrofluoric acid is exceedingly toxic, um, can cause very long QTCs, 700, 800, due to you know, making insoluble formulations with, uh, with calcium. And then finally, um, probably the most important one on this list, be aware that at any sedative hypnotic, if given in high enough dose, but particularly baclofen, TCAs, and barbiturates, can mimic brain death perfectly. Um, there are pathology papers you can find where they'll do post-mortem, you know, pentobarb levels and find that patients, oh, these patients actually were therapeutic and were withdrawn for brain death, so be aware. Um, they can look awful, but as long as they have evidence of cerebral perfusion, you know, with a spect, don't stop what you're doing. Um, and that's it. I'd be happy to take any questions. Real quick, Josh. Thank you very much. Um, we did a case series last year, presented at uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine on um, K2 or you know synthetic cannabinoid-induced acute liver failure. Any idea what the mechanism of that is? Because we're, yeah. you know, in, it, in a lit search, we really couldn't find a clear cause. So that's tricky. Um, my best guess would be a combination of vasospasmal, less likely for liver, um, uncoupling, were they, were they, if they were otherwise hyperthermic and shown signs of that. And they're also, I didn't put, but they're in there, but there are um, papers in the pharmacology literature that talk about um, basically you know, cannabinoid receptors which have not been characterized activating the MAP kinase pathway of, of apoptosis. So my guess would be one of those, but I don't really have a great explanation. You had a quick uh, blurb about ketamine and causing uh, urinary obstruction or things to look out for. Um, is that some, something we should worry about in the ICU, having people on ketamine drips or uh, a little longer use, or what's kind of the time frame for that? Great question. Um, I don't know the answer to how long it takes. Most of these are people who abuse it long term, like over months. So I, I don't know if it's something realistic you'd see in the ICU. I'm not aware of it. But if it, it wouldn't be impossible for, for that to happen. Um, it is a process of actual remodeling of the urethelial tissue. So, I mean, one way could be if you have a patient who has a lot of problems with voiding dysfunction, it could be a sign. But, but I'm kind of making that, extrapolating that. I, I don't uh, know exactly how long. Thanks. Anyone else? Yeah, thank you. Interesting and relevant to folks. Definitely. It's right on the money.